Well, good morning. It's great to be worshiping with you today, and we're glad you've joined us here. Today, January 22nd, 2017, marks the 44th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision to legalize abortion in our country. And all around the country, every year at this time, churches designate a Sunday as the Sanctity for Human Life Sunday to step back and look at what God's Word has to say with regards to the issue, Uh, take time to pray together um, for God's healing and God's work in our midst. You know, in the midst of all of the, uh, the bad news that you find on TV and some of the doom and gloom that was out there this week, uh, there was some good news that came across the airwaves. I don't know if you saw this, but a report uh, released by the Guttmacher Institute has said that the abortion rate in the United States has fallen to its lowest level since Roe v. Wade legalized the procedure. The Institute study found that the rate has declined to 14.6 abortions per 1,000 women considered of childbearing age. That's the lowest recorded since the landmark Supreme Court decision in 1973. For the first time since the mid-70s, the number of abortions has dropped below 1 million in the year since reaching its peak of 1.6 million abortions in 1990. That's great news However, still, even under a million abortions a year is, well, a million too much. You know, as Christians, we need to look at this issue from a biblical worldview because it is, it is a, it's a Bible issue. It's a scripture issue. It's not a, it's not a political issue. Our, our country has often made it a political platform, and, and it's very important, I think, that our political leaders talk about the, this, but it's, it's first and foremost a, a scriptural issue, a biblical issue, that as we look at God's Word, we, we need to come to a settled realization of what God has to say about it. You see, there are a lot of social reasons that we could talk about as to why abortion uh, should not be legalized. You could talk about all of the millions and millions of human beings, uh, 57, over 57 million since it was legalized, that would be here today, doctors and lawyers, men and women, uh, gifted people to, to serve and bless, neighbors, uh, children, um, relatives that would be here today if it weren't for that. But then you think about even further the, uh, the uh, psychological effects that abortion can have on mothers, the physical effects of whether it's uh, increased infertility or risks of different cancers. You think about the human rights violations, millions of people who are not here uh, because, well, they, they had no choice in the matter. Their lives were snuffed out without giving them an option, without giving them any choices. But beyond the social implications, beyond the cultural implications, are the scriptural uh, commands that, as Christians, we need to take into consideration. If we truly believe that the Bible is God's word handed down to us, if we truly believe that this is God's message for us, if He's speaking to us through the word, we need to listen. And he does speak to this topic. So uh, this morning I want to consider five reasons why the church must be pro-life. Why the church must be pro-life. The first of which is very straightforward. God forbids murder. God forbids murder. In Exodus twenty thirteen, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. We are... 
We are all created in God's image, formed by the Creator Himself. And God considers it a divine outrage to take the life of another image-bearing creature. Murder may be defined as the unlawful killing of one person by another, especially with premeditated malice. God has spoken very clearly. And we all understand this instinctively. You can go across the world to various cultures that do not have the Word of God, that may not have any kind of uh, uh, necessarily uh, high religious affiliation, and they understand intrinsically that it's wrong to take another's life. Even amongst uh, atheists today, you, you could talk to them and find out that they would believe that Scripture, scripture aside, taking the life of another is wrong. They may defend a woman's right to choose as to what to do with, with that human growing in their, her body, but, but they would speak against murder. We understand intrinsically this is wrong. And that little child inside of a mother's womb with a beating heart to take his or her life is simply put, it's murder and it's disobedient to God's Word. The second reason that Christians should be, excuse me, should be pro-life is we need to remember that God creates life at conception. God creates life at conception. That child's life does not begin the moment he breathes his first air. It doesn't begin when he uh, has his first messy diaper or when he or she utters their first words or takes their first steps. That life begins at conception. I love the well-known Psalm 139 where David goes... Uh, just into full-on worship mode for God's creation. He says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. For some, that baby inside of a mother's womb is no more than a mass of tissue or perhaps a fetus. But according to David, this is a work of art that's being formed inside of a mom's belly. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. The picture there is of someone intricately dedicated, putting their effort into creating a masterpiece. Have you ever watched someone, an artist, who was just fully engaged in their craft? They're oblivious to the world around them. All their concentration, all their passion is going into their work of art. That's the idea I get here as I hear David's word. God is forming and creating and knitting together a, a beautiful child. That's what's happening as that child grows in a mother's womb. And he, he says, for this I praise you. I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. That little child, that little boy, that little girl that's being created is a treasure from God. And you know, just as a side note from this issue, 
you, you can't read these verses without being reminded just how special you are to God. There are some of us who are naturally pretty tough on ourselves. We give ourselves a hard time for not being able to do certain things or, or maybe looking a certain way, not happy with your appearance. You need to be reminded from, from God's very words that, that you are a treasure of God that He specifically created for His glory. You are The, the creation of you, it's a praiseworthy worthy thing. What God has made you to be is worthy of worship. And that's what God is doing every time a child is conceived. He's working, creating another masterpiece. There's no science out there that supports that this is not life. When a, when a, a woman goes to her, her prenatal appointments and is getting, a well, you know, getting checked up, they listen for two heartbeats. There's another heartbeat in there because there's another human in there. There's another person in there. All the signs of life are evident. God creates life at conception. The third reason that we should be pro-life as believers is that we see throughout God's Word that He cares for the weak and the helpless. God cares for the weak and the helpless. Now you see over and over in Scripture that God is concerned for people who, who can't help themselves. Imagine if you, and, and some of you have been in this situation where maybe you, had a, you were taking care of an elderly parent or a child with disabilities, and you knew that they didn't have the ability to, to feed themselves. This person that you love dearly, you're, you're not going to sit down at mealtime and throw a plate of food in, in front of them and sit back and eat yours while they stare longingly at the food. Out of love, you're, you're going to help them. You're going to spoon feed them if need be. Throw it in a blender so they could drink it, whatever it takes so they can get nourishment because you care about that person and you realize that they're helpless to help themselves. In the Bible, we see that God is concerned about the weak and the needy. Places like Psalm 82 tell us that we're to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. You see, there's commands in this verse that as Christians, we're called to step into the lives of those who can't help themselves for whatever reason. But in this case that we're considering today, it's because it's an unborn child. They're still in the mother's womb. Helpless as helpless can be. And he says, your job is to rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Again, think about this. If, if you see someone about to kidnap your child, will you stand idly by? Would you watch the kidnapper? Now, with all these snow days and everything, I, maybe the thought would cross your mind, like, you know, there's somebody else's turn for a few days. But by and large, when we're in our right mind, no, 
You run, you scream, you do whatever you could to save that child's life. You're not going to let anyone harm your baby. You're not going to let anyone take your, your beloved child. That's what he's calling us to do in these verses. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. In Exodus 22, God commanded the Israelites with regards to the foreigners who had come to live among them. You see, there were people that came and, and for whatever reason wanted to live among God's covenant people. Maybe they, had, they had, had found safety in their numbers. Maybe they had heard about the God of Israel and, and, and they came to worship the God of Israel. And so they came in. Now you have to realize that these were people who had no family connections. They had no job opportunities, no land, no nothing. When you were a foreigner coming in, it wasn't like there was a job board and you could get connected and you could rent an apartment. I mean, you came in and you were an outsider of outsiders. And God was very concerned that these people not get pushed away, not get thrown by the wayside. He wanted them to be helped. And so he tells the the Israelites in Exodus 22, he says, You shall not wrong a sojourner, a foreigner, or oppress him. For, if you were, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. You've got to love God. He's never one to mince words. You never wonder where God's at on a particular issue. And he's very clear here. Listen, these sojourners, he mentions widows and the fatherless child, all three of the most helpless people in that culture and in that day. No, no advocates, no other recourses for sustaining themselves. A widow who would have depended completely on her husband, husband's income and his husband's ability to provide for the family. A fatherless child, someone who couldn't get work, someone who had no place to live. He says, these three groups of people, the outsiders, the orphans, the widows, you better not ignore them. Because if you do, so help me, you will be punished for it. These are harsh words from God to us about the reminder of our job to take care of those who are helpless. God cares for the weak and the helpless. And it's just another reminder today that no matter where you're at, know that God cares for you. Maybe you feel, and maybe you literally are one of these groups of people. Maybe you are an outsider. You've just moved to the area. You haven't met friends yet. Maybe, maybe you're someone who's a widow. You're an orphan. Or for some other reason, you feel weak and helpless in this moment. Know that God has a special place in his heart for you. And it's our job as a church, as the body of Christ, to care for you. Fourthly, Christians, the church, should be pro-life because God commands us to be rescuers. God commands us to be rescuers. When I was growing up as a kid, uh, our nighttime routine usually included bedtime stories and Bible story maybe, and then we would pray together. And Usually my mom was in charge of bedtime routine, but sometimes it would get handed off to my dad, and he didn't like much to read us stories. He preferred 
uh, to tell us stories. And so he would make up these grand adventures about my brothers and I going off to rescue uh, some village or a damsel in distress and defeat and slay a dragon or a vicious ogre of some kind. And we used to love that. We used to love those stories my dad would make up. There's something in, of a, in us that loves the story of, of the hero who goes to rescue the helpless. That's why we love superhero movies. That's why they make hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office. Well, you know what? God calls us to do the same thing. He calls us to be rescuers. In Proverbs 24, there's these couple of verses that are incredibly convicting And very, very poignant. He says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? What what an in-your-face proverb. He says, is God's people... We need to be those who are rescuing those who are being led away to the slaughter, who are being taken away to their death. This doesn't apply to being involved in helping save the lives of unborn children. I don't know what Scripture would. And he says the, our excuses aren't valid. We can't say, I didn't know this. I didn't know this was a problem. He says, he who weighs hearts, he knows. He knows. It's our job to be people who are rescuers. There was a New York Post article written on April 24th, 2010 that told the story of a heroic homeless man. This man was stabbed after saving a Queens woman from a knife-wielding attacker. And as he lay dying in a pool of blood for more than an hour, nearly 25 people indifferently strolled past him. A shocking surveillance video told the whole story. Some of the passers-by paused to stare at this man, Hugo Alfredo Tail Yaks, last Sunday morning, and others leaned down to look at his face. He had jumped to the aid of a woman who was attacked on 144th and 88th, but was stabbed several times in the chest and collapsed as he chased the assailant. In the wake of the bloodshed, a man came out of a nearby building and chillingly took a cell phone photo of the victim before leaving. And in several instances, pairs of people gawked at tail yaks without doing anything. Later, another man stopped, leaned over, and vigorously shook Hugo Tail Yaks's body. After lifting the victim's head and body to reveal a pool of blood, he also walked off. Not until some 15 minutes after he was shaken by that pedestrian, more than an hour, 20, an hour and 20 minutes after the victim collapsed did firefighters finally arrive and discover that Hugo Taliaks, age 31, had died. Many of us think that, well, I've never done that. I can imagine doing that. Seeing someone hurting and just walking by, that's an outrage. Or maybe we have done it. Maybe we have heard about senseless killings, innocent, being led to slaughter and stood by. God calls us to be rescuers. 
Finally, the church needs to be pro-life because God loves babies. God loves babies. I don't know uh, if, if, if you're like this, but um, my wife, it, it, just the sight of a newborn baby um, just goes nuts. She can't, she's, she just hones in. She has everything she can do to keep from running up to perfect strangers and grabbing and hugging and kissing babies. She's learned not to do that. People get a little uncomfortable with that, so she's learned to just kind of watch from a distance. Um, but there's something about a newborn, just seeing that teeny, teeny, teeny baby, the little life. I'll never forget the first time I held my older boys in the hospital. Maybe you can remember a time when you've held a child, a niece, a nephew, a grandchild for the, for the first time. Something unbelievable surges through you. Even if you're not related to the child, this, this love and this care passes over you. Can you believe it that there is another being in this universe who would love that little child more than you? Who is more enamored, more more compassionate, more overflowing with loving care than even the child's mother? There is, and it's God. He's the one that formed that baby. He's been with that baby since day one. You could even argue since before that baby even was conceived God had plans for that little one and he loves him or her more than we could ever imagine. In Luke chapter 18, people are coming to Jesus for healings and in the midst of that, some folks brought some babies. It says in verse 15, now they were bringing even infants to him so that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them but Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me, and don't hinder them, for, such, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This passage, the, the sick and the lame and people in need of a healing touch were coming to him. And people began to bring their babies. Now, for whatever reason, it doesn't say that the, these babies were necessarily sick. Maybe they, they, the parents just wanted Jesus to bless the child to pray over the child, to, to interact with their child. It doesn't say, but apparently the disciples, for whatever reason, were not happy about it. Maybe they felt like Jesus only had time for the real big cases, the, the lame and the mute and the deaf and, and, and the demon-possessed. And these, these babies weren't worth his time. And Jesus said, no, let these children come to me. And he took them in his arms and he held them close. The very one that formed those babies was now getting to hold them. And he even began to teach them that, that the kingdom of God is like these little children that are around me right now, that, that if you're going to be a part of God's kingdom, you've got to come to him with faith like a little child. God loves babies. God loves children. I think Jesus has a special part, place in his heart for them because he knows of their innocence and knows of their inability to defend themselves. As we think about these things, we must also add a very important disclaimer. I want to say a word to those 
who may have had abortions, to women who made the choice to terminate a pregnancy, maybe to the men that, that encouraged them to do so. I, I'd be foolish to think in a room this size that you're not here today. And I want you to hear very, very clearly that God loves you. For too often, we've spent so much time as Christians, and, and rightfully so, on this issue of being pro-life, that maybe, well, not maybe, probably, we've ran over the moms who have had these abortions. We've not extended hands of grace to them to show them that there's forgiveness in Christ, to, to, to lovingly come alongside them to bring healing and hope and help and help them meet the Savior who died for them. If you're here today and you think that for some reason abortion is the unpardonable sin, I want you to know today that you're wrong. God forgives. If you're hearing, me, you're hearing me correctly, if you hear me say, yes, I believe abortion is a sin. But you also need to hear that Jesus came to die for abortion, just as much He came to die for, for one person's anger, for another person's lust or jealousy, or whatever it might be. God, God sent His Son Jesus to the cross to pay for that sin. For all sins. God's forgiveness is full and free. I love Psalm 103. It tells us, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. And Romans 8.1 tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to know that in Christ there is freedom, there is forgiveness. And we want you to know that there is help, there's healing. I pray that you'll seek that out if, if the ache is still there from your past. But for many others here today, you, you think, well, yeah, we're Christians, we're pro-life. It's what, what we do. We're supposed to be pro-life. What does that mean? Now what? Well, again, one thing to fire off passionate arguments or attach a label to yourself or to, to go on a, a Twitter or Facebook rant, but it's quite another thing to put action to your words. But all throughout Scripture, that's what God calls us to do. Not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk, to put our faith into action. So the first question I want to ask you is, do you give? Do you look for ways to give sacrificially to help support uh, unwed pregnant teen mothers to help support organizations that help care for these young ladies, that give them hope and that, that help teach them how to be moms? Do you volunteer? Do you give of your time to places like Hope and Harrison or Joshua's house or others? Are you engaged in ways that show that you truly believe that being pro-life matters? You pray. You pray for pregnant pregnancy centers. You pray for unwed teen mothers in our schools. You pray for our politicians. Have you prayed today that God would overturn Roe v. Wade? Fourthly, 
Have you opened your home? Have you looked for ways to continue to care for these children? You see, one of the criticisms that's directed towards us as Christians is, will be said, well, that's fine. You want to save all these babies, but what are you going to do with them? These teenage moms aren't equipped to raise them. They're going to be born into to poverty, into crime. These moms are doing them a favor by snuffing out their life. What are you going to do if you save them? We as Christians, it's a, it's, it's a valid charge. We need to be ready to help step in and care for this child throughout their life. What, what would it take? Maybe you've got a relative that you're trying to convince not to have an abortion. Are you willing to be there? Maybe to help pay for some child care so this mom can go finish school and go to work? Are you, be, are you willing to be there to help watch the child on weekends? Or to help give them a home for a while? If, if the wheels come off and the state gets involved, are you willing to open up your home to be a foster parent or consider adoption? There are a lot of children out there that need love and care. It's one thing for us to talk about saving babies, and we should. We need, as Christians, need to be willing to be pro-life all the way throughout life, and not just until that child takes its first breaths. In 1985, there was a family with four children living in the Philippines as missionaries. The mother contracted amoebic dysentery, likely from drinking contaminated water. She became very ill and she fell into a coma. And in order to help her, the doctors administered very, very strong antibiotic drugs to combat the infection. What she didn't know at the time was that she was pregnant with her fifth child. The drugs that were given to her to fight the infection had a side effect of causing the placenta to detach from the uterine wall, thereby depriving the child of oxygen. When it was realized that she was pregnant, the doctors immediately stopped the drugs, but said that the high doses she'd already been given had damaged the baby. Doctors believed that there, were danger, there was danger to the mother, Pam, and that the baby would not survive, and if he did, he would have very serious health problems. His parents went to the best doctor in their part of the Philippines. The doctor simply told the mother in a slow monotone that an abortion is the only way to save your life. Pam and her husband, Bob, refused. They refused to have an abortion, and they asked for God's help. Pam was in bed rest at a Manila hospital for the final two months of the pregnancy. Bob and Pam prayed for a healthy baby, but had no guarantees, and they put it in the hands of God. After the baby was born, the doctor who delivered him said that only a small part of the placenta stayed attached. In some miraculous way, it was just enough to keep the baby nourished throughout the terms of the pregnancy. That little child's name is Tim Tebow. But you know, it really doesn't matter that it was a famous person who lived, a guy who was a great college football player, a so-so NFL player and a commentator, because there are millions and millions of babies who are going to be average people like you and I, 
They're not going to be on TV. They're not going to write books. They're not going to be famous. Nobody's going to make a movie about them. But they're people who'd be sitting next to us in the pews today. They're people that you'd be working with at work. God cares about these babies. And as Christians, we need to as well. I want to encourage you. Go before the Lord and ask Him, how, how can I be involved in this? How, Lord, how do you want me to be involved with saving and sustaining the lives of these little boys and girls? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this issue, Lord, let us be reminded that it's first and foremost a biblical issue. It's an issue between us and you. It's not, first and foremost, a political platform. It's not about whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It's not about who you voted for in the election. It's not about a label. It's simply about looking at your word and realizing that life is precious to you from the beginning to the end. And that means it should be precious to us as well, Lord. God, today I want to pray for several things. I want to pray that you would overturn Roe v. Wade. Lord, I want to pray that you would help us as a church and Christians around this country and around this world to rise up and be involved, not just in protesting, there are times for that, but in loving, in putting our arms around a teen mother in teaching her how to parent, in going out and getting a foster care license to help these kids who have no homes once they are born, to open up our wallets, to clear our schedule, to be involved in these organizations who are working tirelessly to help the unborn and those mothers who are considering aborting them. Lord, I pray for the, for the men in this country, for the fathers of these children to step in and be involved in their lives and not, not shirk their responsibilities as a parent. And God, help us as a church to come alongside those who are hurting and weak and struggling and to love and to show them grace. For those who have gone through abortions, for who, those who, whom the ache and the pain is as real as the day it was they they made that decision, that we would love and not condemn, that we would point them to the one who forgives sins and the one who heals hearts, and that we would be the hands and feet of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.